We're going to look this morning uh, beginning at Exodus 20. It's on page 77 in your Bible if you would like to look at that. This is the beginning of God giving the Ten Commandments. So, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And if you want to flip over to Matthew 19. What does that look like practically? And here's the story of a young man. Verse 16 will begin. It's on page 1048 in your pew Bible. The young man says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. May the Lord open these words to our hearts as Bruce comes. Thank you, Tom. You know, there's a whole field of study of meteorology that just studies tornadoes. They uh, go around the country during tornado season and seek to measure their uh, power and their effect after they come through. And, and they, their desire is not just to know tornadoes, but to predict them so that they can save lives, so that they can save property. And this morning, I don't want to talk about physical uh, tornadoes, but metaphysical, or the idea that there are tornadoes that actually go on inside us, not just outside us. And in order to look at those, it's hard because we can't see them, but we can feel them on the inside. And so the Bible and this is really the subject that we're going to talk about this morning, calls these tornadoes idolatry. And that's not a word we uh, use in the grocery stores or in mothers' uh, gatherings with preschoolers, but it is a very biblical word, and it simply means uh, to put something before God, which is why the first commandment is, have no other gods before me. There are two accounts in the Bible of, in the New Testament of rich people who, despite that they can do anything that they desire to do with their wealth, they still lack something. The first one is in John 3 with Nicodemus. He's a wealthy um, a man. He's a religious man. He is a powerful man. 
And yet in the cover of darkness, he goes to Jesus and he asks him, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? The second one is for us to consider today in Matthew 19. Matthew 19 uh, is this particular fellow is often called the rich young man. Most uh, scholars believe that this man is between somewhere in his 20s or in his 30s. He is uh, a very wealthy, powerful uh, young man, and he says himself that he is virtuous because he's, he says that I've kept all the law of God. He is the kind of the Mark uh, Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg of his day. And he has all the money he will ever need and all of the power and all the toys and all the stuff uh, that he can have. He might be, if he was a woman, Beyonce. But yet we find out he still asks this question. What do I still lack? I've got all of this, but I still lack something. I think Jim Carrey answers uh, partially this question when he was interviewed about wealth and fame. He said, if I find myself, I'm sorry, that's uh, C.S. Lewis. I'll come to him in a minute. (laughs) C.S. Lewis and Carrey. (laughs) But you will find Jim Carrey's just as profound. He says, now you got to be quiet so you can hear. I didn't mean to tell a joke. I think everyone should get rich and famous. That's what you expect Jim Carrey to say. And do everything they ever dreamed of doing. So that they can see that it is not the answer. Didn't expect Jim Carrey to say that, did you? My uh, daughter and son-in-law live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I often want to know what cultures, different cultures, have as their descriptors. And very similar uh, to ours, they would say that the average uh, San Franciscan is stressed beyond uh, imagination, tired beyond imagination, and rich beyond imagination. Doesn't that sound familiar? But what do they still lack? Because they're in pursuit of less stress, pursuit of less being tired, and not less money, more money, because they want to do more. They still feel this lack of something. This is why C.S. Lewis will write, If I find myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. For many of us here, the optics are good for us. As far as people can tell, we've got it together. We look good. We are the beautiful people. We are the ones who have enough money that at the end of the month, we still have a little bit left. For many, we tend to look at our friends and we compare them to others. And particularly if there's great potential, we will say they're they're next, whatever. And yet, 
you and I and everyone we know still has this inner voice that says, why is it that all I am doing is not working for me? You see, we live in this predicament, this tension that really bothers the inside even if we don't recognize it. And this predicament goes this way. We live in this present world and yet we are given an invitation by our Creator to locate our hearts and firmly settle them in the next world. Do you hear what he's saying? There's a tension in our lives that we live here, but our hearts are being tugged by the next world. And that bothers us. And so this morning, I invite you to listen in, to listen with intent. That's different than listening, according to my wife. It means that I actually understand. So I'm asking you to listen to understand. But not just you. It is what your pastor needs to hear as well. Today, I just want to pose one question and then offer two solutions or two answers to the one question. The question is a diagnostic question. It's not one that you particularly find in the text, but it's answered in the text, and so I propose it. Here's the question. What do I depend on most? Now, you have to say that for yourself, as I have to say it for myself. What do I depend on most? Here's another way to think about the question. What is the sermon that I preach to my soul? What is the message that I give on a daily basis to myself? What do I say to myself about myself? Stephen Covey, who wrote a New York Times bestseller, Seven Habits Habits of a Highly Effective Person or People, he talks about a true north a moral compass, a guiding principle. It's what you build your life around. It's what you decide upon, where to live, what to do, who to marry. What is that true, true north for you? What is that guiding principle? Because whatever that is, that is your true Lord and Savior. That is my true Lord and Savior. And it may not be Jesus Let's just put that on the table and leave it there for now. Without it in your life, whatever it might be, your life would be wrecked and you would lose your happiness. That's how you know what it is. And when it is threatened, whatever it is, it triggers an anxiety and fear in your heart that controls you, that tells you what to do. To think of it another way, a Norwegian playwright, Hendrik Ibsen, says this, if you take the life lie away, he calls this true north, the lie we tell ourselves, a life lie. He says, if you take that life lie away from the average man, you take away his happiness, which is one of the ways you know what it is. That if you lose it, it could be a person, it could be a thing, it could be an idea, it could be anything. You take it away and you lose your happiness. And your anxiety level goes up 
and your fear level goes up. And what the Bible says and what the Bible calls this is not true north, not a moral compass, not a guiding principle, and not a life lie, but an idol. That which you are looking to be your savior. And I know that makes us evangelicals uncomfortable because we know Jesus as our only savior. And how can we, who have Jesus as our savior, have another thing as our savior? That's Jesus's point of the text. If we stopped right here, we'd be okay. And that you would have an extra 15 minutes for fellowship. And that is this. You can't. You can't have two loves. Either Jesus is first or this other thing is first. And that's why God says you can have no other saviors but me. What's the commonality? Well, when you ask yourself, what is the sermon you preach to yourself? What is the message that you communicate on a daily basis to your soul? And it can be anything. It comes out like this. I'm okay as long as I have this. This is what I mean. As long as my net worth is going to allow me to enter retirement at the appropriate age, whatever that might be, and for some it might be early, as long as I have that net worth, then I'm okay. It could be for some, as long as my grade point average never dips below 3.8, I'm okay. Can you imagine? And yet, year after year, high school students put their lives their souls through that meat grinder as those grades come out to figure out have they met that obligation and they met that that need that feeding of that need to be okay others might say my career path as long as my career path is progressing at the normal rate whatever that means i'm okay As long as my kids are happy and athletic or academic or you fill in the blank, I'm okay as a parent. As long as I can still fit into a size six, I'm okay. As long as I have someone who tells me I love you, I'm okay. What's in common? All these things are good things. Did you notice? They're good things. But we have turned these good things into ultimate things. And when good things become ultimate things, they become replacements or substitute saviors. We pretend that the gift that God has given us is the giver. We uh, 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 pretend that the created thing is the creator himself. And when we do that, these things begin to unravel in our lives. And the tornado begins to turn in our hearts. We begin to ask, what do I still lack? And so, exhibit A, or example A this morning, is to look at this rich young man 
this wealthy young man, this powerful young man, this virtuous young man, and see what his two idols are. He probably has many of them. Calvin, John Calvin would say that we are idol factories. It's not that you've got one, you put it down, and you're good to go. We literally, on a daily basis, produce these things. It is like the weeds in my backyard. I don't plant them. They just come up. And they do that in the human heart since the fall. And they end up defining us and our identity more than we allow Jesus to do it. And that's a shame. But this rich young man has two that Jesus points out. So let's deal with the two that he points out. First, Jesus addresses his idol of money. Jesus says, So sell all that you have and give the proceeds to the poor and then follow me. What's he, what's he saying to this young man, this rich young man? What he's pointing out, what he's exposing, what he's doing this surgery on a heart is to say, your problem isn't that you're rich. Your problem is that you're not poor enough. You don't see your poverty. You don't see that you're poor. And that's a problem. And the only way I know how to get you awake to bring you out of the delusion is to ask you to give it all away so that you can see your poverty. Let me just do a parenthetical sidebar, and then we'll come right back to that. There's a thought out there, and maybe you feel this way, but having money is not the problem. Being wealthy is not the problem. Job was both, at one time, the most righteous man on the earth and the wealthiest man on the earth at the same time. Abraham was the father of the faithful and a very wealthy man. Solomon asked for wisdom and God gave him wealth also. The new heavens and the new earth are going to have roads made out of gold and jewels everywhere. The diamonds that we wear will become commonplace. So you're probably going to have to give them up. Wealth is not this man's problem. And wealth is not your problem if you're wealthy. The problem is a codependency on wealth. His wealth gave him a disease that sociologists recognize in the American culture. It's called affluenza. This idea that because I am wealthy, I can do anything. I don't need anyone. It is when you can't live without your wealth. What do you do when your wealth is threatened? What do you do when your 401k gets cut in half by a bad economy? When you thought you were going to have to get to retire early, but you're going to have to work longer because you don't have enough to enter in. That feeling, that anxiety is because you are dependent on your wealth rather than Jesus. This is why Jesus says, 
it is harder for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle. That's why he says it. Not, not because being wealthy is the problem. It is because you're dependent on your wealth instead of Jesus. This is why the disciples will ask after Jesus says that, well, if rich people can't get into heaven, how are we going to get there? You see, in the ancient world, they believed wealth was connected to God's blessing. That if you were wealthy, it was because God was on your side. He was all for you. And to hear Jesus say, well, it's harder for a wealthy person to get into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to get through an eye of a needle. They're thinking if rich people can't get there, nobody can get there. That's Jesus' point. He's not saying that wealthy people can't get into the kingdom of God on their own. He's saying that no one can get into the kingdom of God on their own. Because the next thing Jesus says is, do not fear. What is impossible with man, he didn't say hard for man, he said impossible for man, it is possible with God. The truth is, you and I cannot love God and money the same. That is, you can't have a love affair with your money. It just can't be your primary love. Christ has to be your primary love. The secret to loving people, here it is. You you can write it down, teenagers. The secret to loving someone is to love them second, not first. If you love them second and you love Christ first, you will love them well. But if you reverse the order, not only will you not love the Lord well, you will not love the person well. It's, all, it's called ordering our loves. Jesus says you just simply cannot have two masters. God wants some of his people to be loaded why? Why would God want anybody to be wealthy if it's, if it's potentially an idol? It's not just because he wants you to be generous. He does. But more importantly, he wants his gospel to go into every neighborhood of this world. Not just public housing, but the big houses too. Not, not just middle class ranchers but in the gated communities too. And who best to bring that gospel? But a Christian who has been changed by the gospel, who is also well off, just like them. Having and loving money are two different things. Jesus is seeking to untether this poor young man, not from his money, but from his idol of wealth, his dependency. Jesus is doing the same thing with us, with other idols. It might be wealth for you. I don't know. And you don't have to have a lot of money for wealth to be an idol for you. In fact, you don't have to have money at all. It's just that you're dependent on that desire that if you had it, you would be okay. The second idol 
that Jesus begins to expose to this young man is his idolatry of his own moral virtue. This is the other sermon that this young man preaches to a soul. I have kept all of the laws of God. I am a virtuous person. What does Jesus say in response? Then keep my commandments. What's this young man's response to that? Well, I have done that. Then I'm in. What arrogance. What arrogance. And instead of Jesus rebuking him, well, well, let me show you. He treats him with kindness, tenderness, but he does tell him the truth. Jesus, it takes a metaphorical scalpel and opens him up in order for him to see, in order for him to be healed. We don't always feel when that scalpel cuts that it's going to end in a healing but it does. Anybody who has been through surgery, it's not the next day that you feel all good. It takes a while. Jesus gives him the command that all commands are built upon. If you'll notice in the list that he gave, he leaves out some commands. But the command upon which all commands are built is the first command. In fact, Martin Luther will say, you can't break commandments two through ten without breaking the first commandment. So, Tom uh, Bell read to us what the first commandment is. And it is to have no other gods before me. Your money, your stuff, that stuff can be around your neck and be a weight. You can't fall in love with both Jesus and money. You can't keep the commandments and not keep the first. The truth is, this man doesn't know he's poor enough. His problem isn't that he isn't rich enough. The problem is he isn't poor enough. Wealth has created a delusional field around him to where he can't understand reality. He lives in one world and his heart is in that world too. His problem is not So much that he has done anything wrong. Jesus doesn't point where this man has done something wrong. In fact, it seems that he's done everything right. Jesus doesn't challenge him on his statement. It's kind of like E.F. Hutton, which was an investment firm, used to have commercials. And they had the tagline at the end of every commercial that said this. We make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. You got to get that deep voice to do that. Jesus is saying the only thing standing in your way, in my way, between me and the kingdom of God is not my sin. It is my dependence on my obedience. Don't miss that. That's hard to hear because we think by doing the right thing that we are pleasing God. And in a way we are. But with regards to moving God's heart toward us, it won't work because it's mixed with our intents, our motives. It's mixed with mixed motives and ruins it apart from Christ. And so what's problem with this young man and his problem with all of us, and particularly your pastor, is this. And that is, is that my problem isn't that I sin. My problem is that I depend upon my obedience to get favor with God. 
And that's why Tim Keller will say, it's not your dirty deeds, it's your damnable good works. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who does this message on this passage, he said this, and this is very helpful. He said, there's a mountain called the law of God that you have to scale, the heights you have to climb. And the first thing you must realize as you look at that mountain, which you are told you must ascend, is that you cannot do it. That you are utterly incapable to do it in yourself. And any attempt, here's the key line, and any attempt to do it on your own strength is proof positive that you do not yet understand. You hear what he's saying? He's saying God's command's main purpose for us is to tell us that we can never scale the mountain on our own efforts. And as long as we realize that, we will run to the gospel that Jesus Christ scaled the mountain for us in our place. And a good measuring tool to find out if we understand that, have received that, is are we still trying to scale that mountain in our own strength? Because if we are, if we're attempting to scale that mountain, first, we're going to fall. But secondly, it's evidence that we don't understand we can't climb it. That only Jesus can go up the holy hill. Only Jesus can scale the mountain for us in our place. And that is received by faith, not by effort. Did you hear it in the young man's question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't do Anything, you simply receive it by faith. It's like falling asleep in the crib. What did the baby do? Nothing. One of the things you might notice when we do uh, uh, baby uh, uh, baptisms up here, and you might not be able to see it from where you sit, but most of the time the baby's asleep, at least until the water hits him or she. But I think it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because the only thing that baby's doing is receiving. That's the gospel. You're only receiving. Christ is just asking you to believe. So what do you depend on most? What is the message that you preach to your soul? And so here's the two solutions. Very quick. The first one is let it go. Let it go. As Elsa and Frozen sang, let it go. If the children could sing now, they actually know the gospel. Jonah said this, a prophet, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What a harsh statement. What you think is making you rich is truly impoverishing you. What is truly making me strong is truly making me weak. What I think is making me happy is really making me sad. What's the rich young uh, man going to do after Jesus told him everything he needed to know to answer that question, what I still lack? He walks away sorrowful because you can't love his money, his virtue, and Jesus all at the same time. What have you been banking your life on? Jesus is pleading with us. Whatever that is, let it go. Sell it. Give it away. Follow me. 
Why keep our umbilical cord tied to that which gives no life? Why would we forfeit the grace that is ours? Give it all to Jesus. Jesus is just asking, put me first, love me most. Let me decide what you're to have. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. He's writing on discipleship and he says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Jesus puts it this way. If anyone is to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Part of that denial is denying that you and I can do anything to put God in our debt so that he will give us the kind of life we think we deserve. It is those who lose their life that truly find their life. It's the great irony of Christianity. To truly live, we must die. My idol, I got lots of them. One of them is you. I care what you think. I care whether you love me. And one of the lessons that I'm learning, and I, and I thought in order to get you to love me, is to not let you know me. That it was safe. But I'm, the lesson I'm learning is that vulnerability doesn't mean less ministry. It actually means more. It's an interesting lesson to learn. For you, it may be your stuff. It could be your sexuality. It could be your social rank. It could be your grade point average. It could be your body type. It might be your whether you're winning or losing. It might be your family. You fill in the blank. How far is Jesus asking you to go to let it go? In verse 29 that Tom didn't read, it says, even if you have to let go of your brothers and your sisters, your mothers and your fathers and your children. When a parent holds up their child to be baptized, one of the things that they're saying is that God is the primary parent of that child, not me. That's hard. But it is also an admission that I have to trust God to write the story of my child. Many of us want to write the stories of our children, and they always end well. The truth is, is the older we become, the more that we recognize about our children is that God has been writing their story all along, even when we have been trying to interfere. The secret to loving the people is to love them second. I wish someone had told me that a long time ago. It could have saved a lot of anxiety. Here's the second solution. You get it all back. If you give it all away, you get it all back. Where did I get that? Look at verse 29 again. Everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers or children for my sake will receive it all back a hundredfold to eternal life. How will this rich man who gives everything that he has away, how will he ever get it all back? He will get it all back, but it will be in a different currency. It will be in an eternal currency, so it won't look like what he gave away. It will be lasting. He will be rich again, but in a different way. I want to give you two formulas. And this is great coming from a non-math person. But two, two formulas that you can plug in. A, everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. B, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
Everything minus Jesus equals nothing, and Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The greatest treasure in heaven is not the mansion you think you're going to get or that jewels will become common and gold will become non-rare. It will be Jesus himself. What kind of God would love you while you didn't love him? The one who hated his own life, the one who put us before his own son. He's the one who kept the law from birth and he goes to a cross and dies in our place. He who was rich became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Let me end with this. The, 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 the painting that, that went for the most money in human history was Picasso's 1955, The Women of Algiers. If you've seen that painting, it's actually a much older painting of Picasso repainted in his unique way, 1955. They put it for sale just a few years ago, and it took $179 million for a single painting that was painted just in 1955. Let me ask you, what is a single painting worth? Same thing what a house is worth. Same thing what your car is worth. Same thing what this building is worth. Whatever anybody's willing to pay. What is your soul worth? What is the human soul worth? The Son of God. God loved you so much in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And if we let it all go, he'll give it all back. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this reality that we're learning about ourselves, that we are yours and you are ours, that you have called us valued, that you have put the value on us as if we were on the auction where all the bidders had come. But instead of the $14 of chemicals laid down for us, you laid down the infinite worth of your own son and called us invaluable, precious, a holy people, a people for God's own possession. May that grip our hearts today, that we would live out of that and that we would see our neighbor, the person sitting in the pew, as that valuable, that treasured, and that we would love you most and that we would love you first. In Jesus' name, amen.